Nehemiah 9, the long prayer. We're looking at verses 26 through 38 today. This is the living, inerrant word of God. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself, and they worked great provocations. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them, and in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet... When they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them, and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and and all your people. From the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings, nor our princes, our priests, nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies, which, with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom, or in the many good things that you gave them, or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, here we are, servants in it. And it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come to your word as your people. We thank you for your precious and very great promises, and they find all their yes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your covenant of grace made to us. Thank you that we can, as your people now, hear your word. May we be teachable. Fill us with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've looked at the last two weeks on the longest prayer in the Bible. And this prayer has been a reminder to us during these weeks of how great his grace is, how awesome the grace of God is to his people, how continual his mercy is to his people. And it's been an example to us also of our need to repent and turn back to the law, to the word of God, when we have strayed off that path that we talked about last week because of our own foolish rebellion. And as we finish looking at this prayer today, Uh, We begin three more of the cycles that we talked about last week, Uh, three of these cycles of rebellion against the law of God, and then repentance after some chastisement, and then God's amazing mercy poured out on his people again. 
So first of all, we look at uh, verse 26, and then the pattern there is basically, it's nevertheless, the people sinned, and verse 27 says, therefore God, or yet God. Now last week, again, it, it, verse 25 ended last week, uh, talking about the richness of the promised land that the people had been given. They were recounting what their fathers had been blessed with, an amazing land. Uh, they were bla- blessed greatly, uh, abundantly by the Lord, provided, uh, he provided for them. And they were able to delight in it. The last verse we looked at was how the people delighted in God's goodness to them. They reveled in it. They reveled in it. But now they continue uh, looking at another cycle of their own people. Uh, but they began another downward spiral or cycle. Verse 26 says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient. Nevertheless, in spite of all the abundant blessings they had had, they were disobedient. And they rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations. In other words, they provoked the Lord to anger. Great provocations against God who had shown his mercy time and again. And their attitude was really uh, toward the law of God was one of disrespect and outright contempt for the law of God. They cast it, as it were, behind their backs uh, as if it were worthless and unnecessary to them as the people of God. They didn't even take time to hear it. They wouldn't hear it from anybody whom the Lord sent. They wouldn't learn it. And then they killed those who sought to bring the word to bear in their lives. Those the Lord had sent to them, again, because of his great mercy, to try to bring them back to his word. The prophets were called to speak the word of truth to the people and to rebuke them, to turn the people back to an obedient life and to a a blessed life, the blessed life that they wouldn't know if they kept the word of God. And they, it says they greatly provoked the Lord in this. For example, I, when I was thinking of this, I was thinking of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Uh, you know how he was treated terribly. Anytime he sought to proclaim the word, uh, they treated him terribly. They tried to kill him. Uh, whenever he spoke from the Lord, the leaders dealt harshly with him. And they threatened him continuously. But even in that terrible time, in, in the time of Jeremiah, when Jerusalem was sacked and uh, most of the people were taken captive to Babylon... In the middle of the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah could call to mind the Lord's great mercies to his people and that his compassions never fail. And so he had hope in the future, as we're seeing now in the future. The Lord's mercies are new every morning. He knew that. He praised God for that. And they are continual to his people because of his faithfulness to his covenant. His covenant is great. Verse 27 says, Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies because of this rebellion, this casting his law behind their backs, looking at the law in such a, a poor way. They, God delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. So they were oppressed again. The chastisement for this was that uh, they were delivered into the hands of the enemies and they were being oppressed. And they became defenseless in a sense. So the people here were defenseless in many ways. And I believe the people of God do become defenseless if we turn from his law. They turn from the Lord who was, who is their defense and their shield. Psalm 62, David said, God only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. But the people here were greatly moved because they had denied him and his law. And they had no defense. They had rejected the sure defense of the Lord until They humbled themselves and cried out to the Lord as they did in a number of those cycles uh, in their time of trouble. Verse 27 continues. And in the time of their trouble, so they'd been chastised, when they cried to you, 
you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. We looked a little bit about that last week in Judges chapter 2. Lord kindly, mercifully gave them uh, deliverers, and he heard their cry, and because he's merciful and gracious, and he's slow to anger, he uh, gave them deliverers, judges, to save them. And this is another yet, another yet, another time where he showed his mercy to his chosen people, even in their rebellion. And brothers and sisters, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Praise God, we can cry to the living God. His eyes are open. His ears are listening. That's from Psalm 34. So the Lord alone is our deliverer. Of course, not the state, not even those he sends in his providence as his agents of deliverance. He alone should be praised when we are delivered. And praise God, he delivers us in many ways we don't even recognize. He delivered uh, our early fathers in America in an amazing way, really. And I was reading this week uh, about Samuel Adams, and this is back in 1777. It was a, a, a dire time. They, most of them didn't think they were going to survive, and they had gathered. They'd had an assembly, and uh, they were wondering if they were going to make it at all. And Samuel Adams said this, We have appealed to heaven for the justice of our cause, and in heaven we have placed our trust. Numerous have been the manifestations of God's providence in sustaining us. We have been reduced to distress, and the arm of omnipotence has raised us up. Let us still rely in humble confidence on him who is mighty to save. And they gave glory to God when he did spare them. As I have done the last two weeks, this is an inspired prayer that we are looking at, and as I mentioned, I need help in learning how to confess, how to pray. And again, in the Valley of Vision, I'd like to read a section called A Cry for Deliverance. We're talking about God's deliverance here. This is called A Cry for Deliverance. Heavenly Father, save me entirely from sin. I know I am righteous through the righteousness of another, but I pant and I pine for likeness to thyself. I am thy child and should bear thy image. Enable me to recognize my death unto sin. When it tempts me, may I be deaf unto its voice. Deliver me from the invasion as well as the dominion of sin. Grant me to walk as Christ walked, to live in the newness of his life, the life of love, the life of faith, the life of holiness. I abhor my body of death, its indolence, envy, meanness, and pride. Forgive me and kill these vices. Have mercy on my unbelief, on my corrupt and wandering heart. When thy blessings come, I begin to idolize them, and I set my affection on some beloved object, children, friends, wealth, honor. Cleanse this spiritual adultery and give me chastity. Close my heart to all but thee. Sin is my greatest curse. Let thy victory be apparent to my consciousness and displayed in my life. Help me to always be devoted, confident, obedient, resigned, childlike in my trust of thee, to love thee with soul, body, mind, and strength, to love my fellow man as I love myself, to be saved from unregenerate temper, hard thoughts, slanderous words, meanness, unkind manners, to master my tongue and keep the door of my lips. Fill me with grace daily 
that my life be a fountain of sweet water. May it be so in our lives. May we learn to cry like that to the Lord, who alone is our deliverer. Our second pattern is verses 28, uh, verse 28 and the first part of verse 29. But they, so the pattern is, but they, therefore God, and then another, yet God did, uh, responded. Verse 28 says, but after they had rest, so God gave them rest in his kindness, they again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet, when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. So after a, a cycle, let's call them a cycle, I guess. Remember last week we talked about 2 Timothy 3.16. We're on the path, we're reproved, corrected, and we get back on the path of righteousness, and we've grown through that process. But after a cycle, we can easily, I believe, get complacent in the peace and the grace that God pours out upon us. This peace uh, being a result of the grace, of his grace in changing us, we can get lazy, I believe, easily. We can get unthankful for his great mercy and his kindness to us. So we need, again, to be chastened uh, to remember the, the law of God and, and the grace of our God. Here, they remained subject for a longer period of time. They were left under the dominion of their enemies. Yet, as we've seen many times when they returned and they cried out to God, to the Lord, he delivered them. And it says, according to his mercies, he delivered them. Continual mercies to them. And many times, it says, and we are the same, many times, more than we can number or realize, the Lord has shown his mercies to us and delivered us from the full impact of our foolishness. He works all this to bring his people back to his law. He is faithful to bring us back to his law. And I had one thought here, one question, I guess. This is maybe a duh question. Doesn't it seem a lot easier to submit with a trusting heart to the Lord who loves us and, and died for us and gave us his law to submit to his law than to go through chastisements, certainly like this, to go through such suffering to move us uh, to repent and return to his precious word. But, like we talked about last week, sin isn't rational, it's not logical, it's destructive. And we may still have suffering by his providence uh, in order to sanctify us and refine us. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. But we may more readily May we more readily submit to his law and not take his mercy for granted. Well, the third pattern is in verses 29 through 31, uh, second part of verse 29. Uh, the pattern is, yet they sinned. And then verse 30 says, then yet God again showed his patience, yet they would not listen to him. And therefore God chastised them again. Nevertheless, as always, God gave mercy in verse 31. So after being delivered, many times it says, it says they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. He shall live. We shall live if we keep his judgments. That was Leviticus 18.5. And they shrugged their shoulders. Basically, they uh, turned their shoulders, turned their back on God. They stiffened their necks and they would not hear. And we saw some of these forms of rebellion continually last week also. They acted proudly, not just in their thoughts, but certainly in action. They didn't heed the good commandments of the Lord, it says. They despised his judgments, despised the God who loves them and gave him his law. 
They had a cavalier or an indifferent or a disrespectful attitude toward the Lord and to his word. They were stubborn, it said. Remember what it meant by being stiff-necked? You couldn't even turn an ox. They were stiff-necked like stiff-necked oxen, unwilling to be led and unwilling to listen to the Lord or his servants. Verse 30 says, yet for many years you had patience with them. That's what we have seen in this prayer and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets. Yet they would not listen. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands, people around them whom God had given them in the past. His patience, Lord God's patience, is measured by years and decades and generations and millennia. In fact, it's eternal, of course, and proven here by the sending of his prophets who were led by the spirit of truth. Now, our patience, on the other hand, although it's growing by the spirit dwelling in us, by the fruit of the spirit, but can sometimes... Brothers and sisters, I know you know this too, but it can sometimes be measured in days or even minutes. Yet even with his great patience and grace to them, they still would not listen to the word of the prophets. Therefore, it says, they were again given into the hands of their enemies, into the subjection of the peoples around them. Giving them over into the hand of their enemies was an act of discipline, and actually an act of grace by the Lord Jesus. Verse 31 says, nevertheless, Again, this shows his patience. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. So the enemies of the Lord were, or they will be, utterly consumed, but the Lord did not utterly consume all the people of God. He left a remnant. He never forsakes his people, meaning he never forgives them up on them. We should be much more aware of God's mercy and grace to us in our, in our own lives much more thoughtful to recount his mercies as we've seen here uh, and thankful for his mercies to our particular families and to this church. He's been merciful and kind in many ways. We can ask the Spirit to open our eyes that we would be much more grateful for his mercy. And we saw that as we were going through Psalm 103, through the meditations of Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. That phrase, I found, is at least eight times, or parts of that phrase are at least eight times in, in the Old Testament. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Praise God. He's kind and merciful. He's covenant-keeping God. Verses 32 through 35, now we go to a change. They were recounting their history. Now they're saying, this is where we're at. We're in the same boat, if you will. Verse 32 says, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy. So they began, as I suggested, prayer usually should be, with adoration, remembering who God is. And that's how this whole prayer began. And uh, they were praising God for who he is what he has done in their lives. So they began adoring him, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy. So in a sense, they're saying, we know that you're this kind of God and we can fall on our faces before you and have any hope of, of forgiveness. And they said, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that they're in right now that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and, and on all your people for the days from, from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. They are confessing here that they now remember him. They're acknowledging him as the great and the mighty and the awesome God and that he keeps his covenant and he does show mercy. They've repeated that to themselves uh, to get to this point to say, yes, God, we believe that. Even when they were 
faithless in keeping their part of the covenant. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2. And it's okay, I believe, for us to remind, if we use that phraseology, to remind God of his covenant promises, to show him that we believe his promises are now, we are now ready to obey. That's what they were saying. We are now ready to obey in a way that we haven't for many years. We are basically, they were saying, and we are basically saying, we believe you are faithful to your covenant, Lord God, and that is pleasing to him. That pleases the Lord God as we humble ourselves and as we pray. Verse 33 says, however, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully. We have done wickedly. So they acknowledged, we deserved that. If we confess our sins this morning, we said, he is faithful and just. Our God is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his covenant. And he is just. And he is holy. And he wants us to be a holy people. An indication of true repentance, I believe, is that we praise God for the justice of his rebuke to us, however form that comes. We praise God for his chastisement to us as a father loves his children. And so we confess that he has been faithful to his part of the covenant and infinitely more so compared to our wickedness and our folly and our rebellion. This morning in our time of confession, we spoke uh, from, if you would like to look back at your uh, bulletin on page eight, we read from, again from the Valley of Vision and we spoke this together. It was in the first person singular, but we spoke this together as a group, as a corporate confession. And it began, I have seen the beauty of your perfect law, but I am fallen and sinful. I have broken your law. So the people of God here in Nehemiah 9, you remember how they had wept when they, got, when they heard the word for, after so many years, all they could do was weep. And they saw the beauty of, of his law again. And they confessed that they were fallen, they were sinful, and they had broken his law. And, our, and the corporate confession continued, my lips are ready to confess, and I bring to you my guilty soul. For the sake of your son, be gracious and merciful to me. We were crying out like they were. They brought their guilty souls to him, as we must do. And then we can say, for the sake of your son, be gracious and merciful to me, to us. We are falling on his grace to us in giving us a redeemer in the Lord Jesus. And then we pled, remember your covenant for all my sins I mourn and for them I ask for mercy. So we cry out to the Lord knowing that we must rely on his covenant to us. This is a, a general plea here and a general confession. Remember your covenant for all my sins I mourn and for them I ask for mercy. We were asking that in a general sense, but then in our cor corporate worship, we seek to be more specific. When we bow and we kneel before our king, we individually confess. That should be some preparation of that before, uh, in the week before each Lord's Day. And we're always remembering the covenant of grace to us. We always must be reminded of it. And God's endless mercy to us in the Lord Jesus in our time of confession each week. Now the basis of our hope or forgiveness is, as we do confess, is the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, his blood shed for us. That is the clearest, it's the most certain and sure sign of his mercy to us. A seal of God's covenant to us. In his sacrifice, we have the surety of forgiveness. We have the confidence of our hope that we can come to him and re remind him of his covenant. In Nehemiah 9.34, it says, Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them. So the leaders of the people 
were not good examples to the people of God. They were not teaching what they were called to teach. These pe- the people were, uh, had unfaithful shepherds and, and unfaithful leaders. Verse 35 says, and they have not served you in their kingdom or in, in the many good things that you gave them, looking back at their, their own people, or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. So they used, essentially, they used God's many gifts to them, his blessings of the covenant uh, for personal gain, not for service in the kingdom. But may we, we heard about stewardship this morning, may we be faithful stewards of his covenant blessings, the many covenant blessings we have as a people here. Now they were more concerned, I believe, with their own kingdoms, and they were not thankful for all the good things from the Lord. And also they did not turn from their sin, it says. They did not lead by example in obedience or in repentance for sin. Pray for your leaders that we will humble ourselves, always be humbling ourselves before the Lord. But the people here were now confessing for the history of all their, their own unfaithfulness. They looked at their past, but now they're saying, this is where we stand and this is why we have been unfaithful to your precious law. So now we come to the situation uh, the people faced here. It was the just consequences of their own sin. In verses 36 and 37, it begins, here we are, servants today. So they're crying out, servants today. And the land that you gave us, gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, here we are, servants in it. It's not their land. You remember from last week that they remembered the blessings of the promised land uh, to their fathers. When they came into the promised land, they were very fruitful. They had houses already ready to be lived in. Established fruit trees and olive trees, wells that were already dug. But now, verse 37, it says, it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle, their means of production, and we are in great distress. So the remnant here, actually were not slaves in a foreign land. Uh, They had been able to return, or remnant had returned, and there were some actually left there nor were they really abject slaves in, in Israel, where they were, in, or in Jerusalem. They had some autonomy, but they were essentially vassals. They were forced to pay extremely high taxes, burdensome taxes. Probably they could barely survive. And so the increase, the blessings that God intended for future generations, that which should have been for future generations, went to the kings over them. Is the church in America somewhat like them now, brothers and sisters? The land, is the land yielding fruit for others? Is there dominion over us by those whom the Lord has set over us because of our sins, because of the church in America not rising up, being lawless? Is wealth being consumed rather than kept for future generations? Is this because Christians in general in America have denied the law of God, have rejected the law of the Lord? Are these some of the current consequences of the people of God in America who have rejected the law of God. Well, let's pray that in our nation, this cycle that we are in would be shortened because we and our covenant children, by the grace of God, joyfully follow all of the law of God, all of his word, and we're seeking to act righteously according to all of his word. And as far as we can, that we would be bolder 
in teaching our children and in teaching other Christians we meet who reject the law of God about the impact of lawlessness or disrespect for his precious law. You all know Billy Graham died on uh, this past Wednesday. And uh, I was reading a little bit about some of what he has written over the years. About 10 years ago, he wrote uh, something when I, I think they were presenting him with a Medal of Honor, or I can't remember. But this is what he said. Somebody had asked him, well, how, how's America doing, kind of thing. And he said, America has gone a long way down the wrong road. We must turn around and go back and change roads. If ever we needed God's help, it is now. If ever we needed spiritual renewal, it is now. And it can begin today in each one of our lives as we repent before God and yield ourselves to him and to his word. Now he's talking to individuals there. Could be said to churches in this land. First, he said, we must repent. Repentance means to change our thinking and our way of living. It means to turn from our sins and to commit ourselves to God and his will. Over 2,700 years ago, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah declared, and this is from Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. And he went on. That was his first point. Second point was, we must commit our lives to God and to the moral and spiritual truths that, that have made this nation great. Think how different our nation would be if we sought to follow the simple and yet profound injunctions of the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. But we must respond to God, who is offering us forgiveness, mercy, supernatural help, and the power to change. And then third, he said, our commitment must be translated into action in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and in our society. He didn't say in our church, but I, certainly he was implying that. And we see at the end of this prayer here that the people indeed took action. They were committing themselves publicly to keeping the law of God and renewing their part of the covenant. Charles Spurgeon on this last verse, verse 38, said, There are many occasions in our experience when we may very rightly and with benefit renew our covenant with God. After recovery from sickness, when, like Hezekiah, we have had a new term of years added to our life, we may fitly do it, or rightly do it. After any deliverance from trouble, when our joys bud forth anew, let us again visit the foot of the cross and renew our consecration. Especially, he said, let us do this after any sin which has grieved the Holy Spirit or brought dishonor upon the cause of God. Let us then look to that blood which can make us whiter than snow and again offer ourselves unto the Lord. So renew our covenant, our part of that. So this prayer has shown us all patterns of rebellion by the people of God and the continual and the covenantal grace of our Lord as they repented. And now we see the change, the actions that the remnant are taking at this point in this last verse. Verse 38 says, And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. So because of all this, they said, because they've just recounted the history of the rebellion of their own people and the state that they are in now because of their own sin, they made a clear decision here. Now, this word covenant is a different uh, Hebrew word, and it actually means a firm agreement. They're not making another uh, covenant like the Mosaic covenant. But they put it in writing. Verse 10, if we go through that, 
shows exactly what they are committing to do. Essentially, we're going to keep the law of God we have, that we have been rebelling against all these years. So they sealed it. The, uh, the leaders sealed it anyway uh, as representatives for the people. And we see that true repentance results in action. First, in terms of right thoughts from the word of God and prayer, of course. And then steps to flee from unrighteousness to develop habits of, right, un, of righteousness. Change is needed and change is possible, praise God, for his people because of the grace of God. God, by his grace, enables us to change. He has called us to change, empowers us to change by sanctifying us through the scriptures. It will always be in the scriptures. Through teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Now, of course, people must first respond to the gospel. As we have seen the past three weeks, the people of God had to be reminded of God's grace again and again. And as I've said numerous times, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We need to wake up and preach the gospel to ourselves. The gospel of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, by his grace alone. And a verse I like, which I've considered, I was going to say, maybe we should all put this up where the first thing we see when we get up is this verse or a verse like it from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, so again, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Wouldn't it be great to wake up with that thought? And we must be reminded, it seems, also of God's faithfulness to us, his covenant people, even in our sin. We must know the gospel before we can be edified and built up and established in the faith. That verse is Colossians 2, 6 and 7. And it says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So we see in that verse that our growth is like a plant. It starts by being rooted in the source of life, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in our abiding in him. And then we're built up in him. And then we're established in the faith. Now, the navigators used to call it the three E's, I think. It was uh, evangelize, establish, and equip. Yes, people need to hear the gospel. We have been given that gospel. and We are given the call also to present that gospel to whomever the Lord brings into our life. So evangelize, establish, establish those who turn to the Lord, and then equip them to serve. So it says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, you have received him, you have confessed that you have sinned, and you have turned to the Lord to repent of your lawlessness by the power of the Holy Spirit. So your roots are now able to be nourished in your abiding relationship in Christ. And then you can begin to be edified and established in the faith. And the goal of that is in Ephesians chapter 4, where it says that we all come, we're all heading toward the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is the measure. That is what he is changing us to, to be. In one of his many books on discipleship, uh, Jay Adams wrote a book called How to Help People Change. Great book. How to Help People Change. All by the gospel, of course, the power of God. He said, uh, he had some good advice. And as I've noted these past three weeks and recalling the history of the people of God and, and their lawlessness, Jay Adams said, uh, there can be no conviction. That was the, this part of that uh, path. There can be no conviction apart from teaching. 
In other words, the word of God. There can be no conviction. One is convicted over against a standard. And the only standard anyone has is the living word of God. At every point in the repentance and change in the lives of the people of Israel, we saw that there was, there was a renewal of their love for the word of God. A return to hearing and applying his precious word. A return to the absolute standard by which we must measure ourselves. It'll always be the same for us. We need to hear, memorize, read, study the word of God and meditate on it with diligence in our growth in the Lord as we mature in the Lord. There is no other way to mature. How disciplined would you say you are right now in your life in your intake of the precious law of God? Well, we only get to the reproof and the correction stages of that 2 Timothy 3.16 loop by being taught constantly, by being in the word. And we only get back on the path to the training and discipleship growth stage as we go through the reproof and correction stages according to the word. It's all based on the word of God. And the further you are from the word, to that degree, the longer your path will be away from pleasing the Lord before getting back on the path to becoming like our Lord. After each cycle, when you're back on that path, we've grown through it. You've matured through it. You've been through some hard things. And you have a deeper awareness of and a joy in the gospel of grace to you. You are developing through that, by his grace, habits, good habits. And you're changing, being conformed to the image of your Savior. Each time you put off the old habits and put on the garments of righteousness, which we receive from the Lord Jesus by his death for us. J. Adams said, in sanctification, a regenerate person becomes more and more like Jesus Christ. Very simple definition. That is what sanctification is. That's the goal. We are changing to become like our Savior. And as we've seen these past three weeks in this prayer, the people of God must change. We must keep repenting and keep turning from our rebellious ways back to his word. He will always seek to bring us back to his word. We must submit to the scriptures and to obedience to the scriptures again and again. And we'll be learning this, we'll be doing this all the days of our lives by his grace. May we do so more rapidly. May that cycle be short when we get off that path. And may we be all the more thankful to the Lord for saving us from an eternal downward spiral or cycle and for his saving grace, which frees us from that. And it frees us for growth in righteousness and Christ-likeness. It frees us for service in his kingdom. And it frees us for an e to rejoice in our eternal home and an eternal and joyful communion that we can have now, unhindered by sin then with our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you are, as they prayed, the great and mighty God. And we praise you that you keep your covenant and you pour out your mercy on your people and you hear our cry as we repent. And we pray that we would grow in our love for your word, that we would be disciplined in the intake of your precious law, and oh, that we would be diligent to hear and repent and obey and together rejoice in the great gladness we can have in you. Conform us into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Fill us with joy in your presence. Lord, root us in you and in your precious word. Build us up as a church and establish us in the faith here. We submit ourselves to you and we ask all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.